Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. You are now joining us for part four of our discussion on the doctrine of limited atonement. At this point, we're entering into the last 30 minutes of a two-hour recording session. At about the one hour and 40 minute mark, the phone that we are using for video gets a call without us knowing it. That call knocks out the video from that point on. So if you're watching this as a video cast on our YouTube channel, the last 20 minutes will be just our logo. Airplane mode will be used for all future recordings. And now, part four of Limited Atonement. All right, so let's move forward a uh, chapter. Yeah, to uh, three, nine. Um, we should probably start in eight. I would just read that whole paragraph, yeah. eight through ten, yeah. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So obviously the pushback uh, from the unlimited atonement side is verse 9. He's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Um, R.C. Sproul dealt with this when I was listening to one of his uh, podcasts. And he says there's two words that we really have to hone in on. Um, the it, in my Bible, it's wishing. What is it? What is it in yours? Wishing, Will, wishing. Maybe he was re- desiring, like desiring or willing. Okay, I think willing was the the word out of what he used. Of so maybe that's KJV. I, I don't know. Um, he was but, an ESV guy later in life. Depends on when you. I mean, the, you could have been listening to him from the sixties. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the sixties, but I think it was probably either mid nineties. Well, ESV wasn't around then. Yeah, so. so. He might have been NAS at that point. Yeah. So we digress. <laughs> <laughs> so wishing and any are the two uh, words that we really got to understand. And uh, per- that's not my take on this, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to hear what what you have to say. Uh, I'll too. let you finish yours, and yeah, then I'll yeah. do mine. Yes. Um, so he uh, points out that there are two words in Greek that can be translated into will or wishing or willing. And both of those words have like four or five different shades of meaning mm-hmm. um, that both in our English Bible just get translated will or wishing or desire. And so we need to understand what's being said here. And he doesn't go through exhaustively all the different meanings, but with God, often we talk about three Sometimes two, sometimes three, how how you split it up, different, maybe four, wills of God. I'm going to go over three of them that are mentioned here. And one is the will of decree. So when we say God decrees something, nothing will stand in the way of that coming to fruition. He decrees that the earth is going to be created. He creates the earth. There's nothing that that gets in in the way for that. In six days. (laughs) I agree in six days. Six yams. <laughs> six yams. Um, 
He has also, we might say, so we could read this verse as he decrees that, let me just pick it up. He decrees, he does not decree for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Clearly that's not the case because... Well, if he did, then we don't have an omnipotent God. We either don't have an omnipotent God or universalism is true. Right. So either he's failing in his decreeing or we're wrong and people won't end up in hell. Another possibility for decreeing or for this, pardon me, for willing or wishing is a will of desire or moral will. So we see God's will of desire reflected in, you know, thou shalt not uh, lie, thou shalt not murder. Um, First Thessalonians, Paul says, this is the will of God for you that you be uh, sexually pure. Obviously, pardon me, obviously this will of God is thwarted all the time. Mm. Not without impunity. There are consequences for thwarting this will of God. But God is not sovereignly guaranteeing that his precepts are carried out by all people. Right. But when you put that in there, it doesn't really make sense. God, it's his moral desire that none would perish. So if you perish, you're kind of going against his desire. Yeah. You could if perish is a parallel for <clears throat> living and dying unrepentantly, maybe, but yeah. And RC says he doesn't prefer that, but he knows some theologians who go there. He's fine, but it just seems awkward to try to put that in there. Then there's the third will, like the will of disposition. Like this is his how he's disposed. He's disposed to this type of thing being the normal thing that that happens. And so we could read that as, you know, his will of of disposition is that none should perish, which seems to make sense, assuming in in all three of these readings so far, I've been leaving the any as to every single Mm -hmm. person. But RC is going to pivot here and say, the only way we can choose which one of these wills is the correct will is to understand what he means by any. And any is a pronoun. It's a type of pronoun. And so it has an antecedent. And we got to find out what that antecedent is. Um, and he says, uh, do not let this one faith escape you. Um, pardon me. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so the the antecedent probably is you. Right. Um, that's who God has in mind. And so if he's not willing that any of you perish, well, who's the you that he's talking to? It's the sheep. It's the elect. It's the the, the believers. And so then we can put that first definition of decretive will mm-hmm. back in there because God is not going to let anything happen to frustrate his winning over of his sheep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree that it's his will of decree there, but you have to limit the any. Um, you know, if you look in Second Peter 1, 1, the letter is written to believers, those who, have obtained, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. If you look in the start of the chapter, um, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. 
the start of verse 8, it starts with the word but, and that's only a continuation. So this is continuing from the previous paragraph. But don't overlook this fact, beloved. So, and again, this chapter is not about the atonement. This chapter is about the coming of the Lord. It's about the fact, if you look up through verses 1 through 7, it's about, you know, God destroyed the earth before with water, but ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything's kind of going on. And so everyone thinks, well, it's always been this way and it's always going to be this way and that's not what's going to happen. But you guys don't need to worry because those who are his will be saved and then the whole earth is going to burn. I mean, it's just a little aside in the middle of a larger discussion where he says, don't worry, God's got this, essentially. And God is not slow towards you concerning his promises. God will fulfill to you his will of decree, which is that all of you, the sheep, the church, will be saved. It, I mean, it just it, it really flows very well when you read 13 verses instead mm-hmm. of one. Right. Right. If you just say, God is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Well, gosh, that sounds one. But when you put it in the context, all of a sudden, it's, it's really not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, um, so it sounds like you're a proponent of never read a Bible verse. In order to understand what that Bible verse means, you have to read more than just absolutely yeah. yeah yeah in fact when i go through here and i do my notes um about the minimum that i'll do is a paragraph and generally i try to at, at least take notes on a paragraph and read the chapter that it's in because it, it's so easy and we can do this to each other now it's not just the bible that can be twisted in this way but it, you know you can go find your kids having an argument and if all you hear is the last sentence you may have no idea what's actually going on, but you think you do because mm-hmm. it sounds, and, and you know, well, oh, Dad, we were joking, or oh, I didn't really mean that, or I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that can mitigate against a direct understanding or, or, or a straightforward reading of particular words when you put them in context. And so that's what we need to do. We just need to put them in context, and all of a sudden, it's not that hard to figure out right. what Peter was saying. Okay, we better motor on. Um, do you want to address, uh, what is that, First Timothy? 2, 3, 2. You have 3 through 4, I have 4 through 6, but I think we're lined up on the same general passage. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say that most of the time um, Arminians basically stop at verse 4, but I would agree that we have to go through 5 and 6 to really get the passage. Um, all right, so I'll go ahead and read the paragraph. This is two, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay. 
I did a lot on the last one, so I'm going <laughs> to give you an opportunity to... Yeah, well, I, I'm afraid we're going to sound redundant because I think a lot of the same arguments from the, the other ones apply yeah. here. Um, again, this passage is not specifically dealing with the atonement. Um, he's more talking about... Although our, this is maybe closer to it being... the. I mean, at, at least half of the verses here are probably touching on it. So the chapter as a whole isn't, but it's right. kind of a minor... It's not just an aside this right. time. It's a little bit more of the discussion. Yeah, and and I actually referenced this passage uh, just yesterday on one of my thankful posts because uh, he's talking about our relationship to government and how mankind goes forward and how we have we want peace um, so that the gospel can go forth. Um, and this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Now, you may have a different take on this, but I would say, uh, again, from our previous discussion, what does it mean for God to desire all men to come to know, um, all men to come, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth? What type of desire? Is it a desire, is it his sovereign desire that he's going to win and fight for? No. Um, either he's not omnipotent or mm-hmm. universalism is true. Um, is it a desire of his, of moral desire? Or is it a desire of his disposition? I think to try to press this to say that he desires it, and therefore, he's atoned for everyone. At some some uh, level, is going beyond what's being said. Even if, even if you said, God desires that all men would come to know Him, that wouldn't necessarily mean that all men are paid. Um, if you going back to our previous argument, well, I think their answer to that would be verse six. That he gave himself as a ransom for all. Yeah, I, okay. So let me get there. Okay. Um, so even if you had a um, an Armenian understanding of, did I say it wrong? Armenian understanding of uh, how one comes to belief wouldn't mean that God has atoned for everybody philosophically. Um, so now verse 6 says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Mm-hmm. All, of, all of what? All of, all of mankind? So to, to me, and I, we talked about this before, these are kind of meant to be defeaters to our position. Mm-hmm. Um, your position can't be right because this verse defeats it. And I don't necessarily have a dog in the fight as to necessarily how, if you take this verse to mean... Um, a or B, I think if we can show that there's a reasonable way to understand this, either the all is limited or his desire is limited or we're pressing the verse too hard, all of those remove the defeater to the position Mm -hmm. that we hold. And we hold that position because of clear teaching in other places and I think good philosophy that we derive both from, you know, the book of of nature and the book of, of uh, scripture. Yeah. 
So what, how did you uh, come down on this one? Um, a lot of similarities there for sure. Uh, I think one point that I would draw out that I didn't hear you saying is that, um, well, a couple points. One, verse 2 kind of modifies the all away from a purely individual to more of a category, right? Um, because intercessions need to be made for all people. And then in verse 2, he kind of clarifies what all people means, and it's kings and all who are in high positions. So the all people, uh, what one author that I read said that Paul is not telling Timothy to go get an Ephesian phone book and just go down the line and pray for all of them. I mean, he's, he's saying all kinds of people, and particularly in the context where these kinds of people are going to oppress the church, we should pray for those kinds of people for their salvation and also that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. And then in verse 5, uh, it says that Jesus is the mediator between God and men. And if we, if we take that, that he's mediating between God and every single individual, then I think you get into even deeper problems if it's particular atonement for everybody. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm trying to imagine what someone might say. <clears throat> what would you say to someone say, yeah, he's mediating for all. He is bringing each one before the Father in the hopes that they would come to faith. I don't, I don't. I think if you look at what Hebrews talks about with his role before the father as our mediator and particularly, you know, also in Romans eight, um, that is a salvific only activity. That is something that occurs only in behalf of his elect. And so if Christ is mediating for you, how can you go to hell? How, How can you have sin that's unpaid for? If Christ has atoned for your sin and is actively mediating for you before the Father. I mean, if you go to Romans 8 and can read that what Jesus is doing there for those people is for... Un- so you don't kind, think Kind of like Jesus... we said with David Brandes, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> right. You, know, I mean, it, you don't think he could be a failed mediator? No. And I don't think he's a failed <laughs> atoner either. But yeah. yeah, I mean, at some point, I, it, it just strikes me that you've... If you want to hold to that then I would say that you've probably got a presupposition that you're putting at a higher level than a proper exegesis of Scripture. Okay. I don't disagree. Okay, um, so those were some of the big ones. Um, I do want to touch briefly on 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 11. Uh, This is a passage I've gone to a lot in establishing an early dating of the gospel. So if you're familiar with Gary Gary Habermas and his work on the minimal facts and how far we can push what um, Paul received. But this was mentioned by um, Tim Barnett, I know, and maybe a couple others. Um, So this is Paul. He's going to go through this rabbinical formula for delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It goes on. He was buried, raised from from the dead according to scriptures. He appeared to all these people. Some of them are still alive, or most of them are alive. Some of them have died, and least of all, um, he appears to Paul. So that's a summary of, of that passage. Um, and so the question that Tim asked was, oh, it says that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. 
what scriptures would Paul have had in mind when he mentioned that? Um, there, I guess there may be a couple of, of possibilities there, but almost everyone agrees that it's Isaiah 53 and uh, 53 11. So let me turn there and read that. Um, Three through eleven, yeah. four through six. Yeah, let me let me get here. Yes, sorry, I don't I don't know how I got some of my verses <laughs> wrong. Should have pre-checked all of those uh, references. Well, that was Corinthians three through eleven. Okay, thank yeah. you, thank you. That's that was just my eyes playing a trick on me. All right, so I'll start in four. He says, "Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried." Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So his point was... And I guess in the Hebrew, which is often the case, there is a fold. So they start one way and they kind of mirror and they come back. Um, I remember this from Dr. Thomas Howe um, in my Old Testament. That was one of his big things was understanding the Hebrew language and how they would they would go someplace and kind of fold back the language. And Tim made um, a point of saying that the all that we have in six, all of us, is the same word at the end in the Hebrew. It's also the last word uh, laid on him, the iniquity of us all. And so if all have gone astray, we believe all men are sinners, then shouldn't we interpret the all of the iniquity being laid on him is all people as well. So Tim, if I understand his position right, believes that Christ literally died for every single person's past, present, and future sin. That's the extent question. He believes the application happens only once the conditions are met and that those who reject the salvation, part of the punishment is that Christ died for their sins, and yet they still rejected him. Like it heightens their sin before God. Hmm. I, I don't. We'd have to kind of repeat a lot of what we've already said, <laughs> which I'm not going to do. But I think it's clear that we think that once sins are paid, they're paid. Yeah. Um, it's clear that we think that um, Christ isn't going to bear sin. The, the wrath for sin and the father turn around and dole out that wrath a second time. So it might be that we do interpret these alls the same way, but it's not the all of every mankind. Even though um, all men have gone astray, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the writer has in mind, that it's all every single man. And if you read four, five, and six, He's talking about um, all the things that God does on our behalfs. Uh, and there are a bunch of inclusive pronouns there. Our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he, he carried, 
We ourselves esteemed him as stricken, smitten of God, inflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. That sounds like not just the extent of the atonement, but the application. Like you're actually healed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for him to say all of whom... Us. Well, who are the us there? Those who are healed by his scourging like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused iniquity of us all to fall on him. Well, I, and that, so here in the ESV in the middle of verse 5, I think yours is the, our well-being. But it says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Not and I'm, I'm assuming that that's like probably shalom. Or yeah, that, that would be great. That. That, I think that would even strengthen it if it was shalom underneath that. Yeah. Because obviously when, when, you know, there's lots of different peace in the Bible, but the peace here would be the peace with God. Right. Um, where, you know, we have our introduction, Paul talks about in Romans, through the not Son. A, not a potential peace. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's an actual peace that he has bought for us uh, with his blood. Yeah. So I think it, we can interpret the alls the same. I think I would just say, but the writer here, Isaiah, limits it to all of us. Um, and who, have talk, peace. who have peace, who, who have, have been, been healed. healed. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like we rehearsed that. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't. We don't do no rehearsing. You, you know that we haven't rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> or I wouldn't be caught, you know. Uh, we wouldn't have had the jump cut. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so I think that addresses that one. Anything else you wanted to say? All right, so let's go to John 3.16. Oh and then boy. we're going we're gonna to skip. We, we have some other verses that were mentioned here. Um, Mark 10.45, John 1.29, Romans 5.18-19. David, David Allen in his podcast just listed all of them. And they're all, we, we could go through each and every one of them. But we're going to get really redundant because we're going to make some of the well, same we're over arguments. Two hours at this point as well. So <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be a ten-part intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're going to skip over those, but we do want to look at John three sixteen, um, and I also want us to address the the whosoever will of Romans ten. We haven't talked about total depravity, but. Uh, Maybe we should have started there. Maybe we there. should have started there. <laughs> uh, but go ahead <clears throat> with John 3.16. Can I read it out of the footnote of the ESV? Sure. I mean, okay. I think we all... Pro- I'm guessing everyone who's listening to this podcast has it memorized. Probably in the KJV. Yeah. The inspired. Yeah. All right. So, for this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, read it one more time. All right, I'll read it in the non-footnote version. No, For no, God no. so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So he loved the world so much You're killing me. that <laughs> he gave his son for the whole world so that none of the world would perish. Is that what that verse is saying? I was with you up until the last clause. 
Yeah, he, he loved the world. He did love the world. And this how did is, he love the well, world? Well, this is another thing. I've heard, and I don't remember who I heard this from, but they, they would say that John uses cosmos, which is the world, um, like in five or six different ways just in the Gospel of John. So he's not being inconsistent or anything. We have words that mean different things in different contexts. And so it, we always need to be careful when we see that word by John and say, okay, what kind of world is he talking about here? Because sometimes it's the planet, sometimes it's the population, sometimes the cosmos is the cosmos, and it's like the universe, and it's just he doesn't use it the same way every time. And I, I would say that in this one, he's first of all, this is not a verse that should be used by either side to argue for a limited or unlimited atonement. Um, if anything, back to your original point, it's a limited atonement because... The ones who get eternal life are those who believe. And so, since there are those who don't believe, you have those who are not atoned for. Right. So, I've heard some people make a big deal out of whosoever believes in him or whoever believes in him. But in the Greek, the whoever is translating pos. Right. And I remember enough from my one semester of Greek that that means all. And the word after that is those who believe. Right. So... He loved the world in such a way that he gave his only son so that those who believe in him... All the believing ones. All the believing ones yeah. would not perish. Right. Yeah. So the idea... I mean, whoever is not necessarily a bad translation unless you interpret whoever to mean every single person has an ability. The ability is not in this verse at all. This is a mechanism verse. This says belief equals eternal life. It doesn't tell you who can believe. It doesn't even really tell you how you believe or what it means necessarily. But all it says is all the ones who believe receive eternal life and don't perish. Right. So there's a lot of discussion behind what it, how do we get to all the ones who believe, which right. is how we have Calvinists and Arminians. Right. Um, but it also tells us God loved the world so much. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? Uh, briefly. So the I prefer the footnote reading uh, on the ESV on this one. For this is how God loved the world. The so here is not an intensifier. It's not like I love ice cream so much. It's not God so loved the world. And in fact, I hear people paraphrase this and say God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily disagree with that concept. But that's not what this verse says. You can go other places and substantiate that. But this verse says, this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son. This is how he showed his love for the world. Yes. Some, some, well, I'm using their love as an active right, verb. Right. Yeah, not, this is how he felt really good about us. But this is right. what he did to demonstrate his love. Right. So that, yeah, that, when I hear people using so, like how I would describe how much I love ice cream so much, it, it just kind of bothers me. Okay. So we can I, cut that out of editing if no, you want to. No. Everything stays in. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. So here are some objections that aren't necessarily verse objections. These are more philosophical, theological objections. Um, so David Allen made this objection. Limited atonement calls into question God's universal love of all mankind. Why? Well, I would say... Nowhere do I see that God 
loves all mankind the same way. Exactly. Um, yeah, that would be my... <laughs> that's the pushback in my why question. Right, yeah, because the Bible tells us that some people are the objects of God's wrath. Yep. Um, and Esau have I hated. Right. Which I'm not convinced that that hated means just loved less. Right. So... Yeah, so... Um, What's it mean for God to love the world in such a way that he would give a son? I think there's there's a way that you can make sense of God loving the world. Uh, and we were talking about this before. What we all deserve the moment we sin is God's wrath. Yeah. Yeah. It's God's grace in his... And grace is a demonstration of love that... Anyone exists on this planet and goes through the the other graces that we experience from God here and not immediately plunge into torment. God doesn't owe us salvation. Um, I wrote this word down, but I guess it in the in the wrong pot part. Um, supererogatory is an act that goes above and beyond what the call of duty and Christ's death on the cross for us was that type of act. He, he didn't owe it to us. He wasn't obligated to offer salvation to anyone. And the fact that even if it is limited, that's more than what, what he owed us to begin with. Right. <clears throat> well, and, I mean, Scripture does tell us that God is kind to all, but I think it's a false leap of logic to then say, that means that God must treat everyone with the same kind of grace and give everyone the same opportunities and extend this provenient grace. And um, I mean, there's a lot more to be said on Calvinism and free will, which I think does exist. But um, the, the idea that a creature that is freely in active rebellion against God somehow should be treated the same by God as you or me that I mean, yeah. I, I just don't think that that's a proven assertion. And there's other ways that God shows us love. He talks about he causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Uh, mm-hmm. Psalm talks about he provides food for all the creatures and all of us. So that mm-hmm. there's provision that he makes for us um, that are part of his grace. Another David Allen objection. Limited atonement ends up offering salvation to those whom... Or for whom no atonement has been made since Christ did not die for everyone. In other words, the problem of a well-meant offer. And I saw this in lots of different videos, so I don't think I copied this from other places. But basically, the idea was if we were to go out and, like we do sometimes, we go downtown, talk to folks, and we say, Christ loved you, he died for you. You all you have to do is repent and believe, and his death, you you'll be you'll get the benefits of that death. And I kind of worded it intentionally so that it kind of lines up in there. First of all, we've been trained one separate side note, small side note. You know, we want to present the law first. You're guilty mm-hmm. uh, before God, but guess what? There has been a payment made, and if you believe that payment can be given to you yeah i think how i worded it there 
no Calvinist would have an issue with. Right. Um, no Arminian should have an issue with because we both believe that if we both agree that if you believe, then you get the benefits. Yeah, this is related to another one you have a little bit later. How can we offer salvation if Christ hasn't died for all? Right. And I would push back and say, we don't offer salvation. We announce salvation, and we announce that Christ is a perfect Savior for those who repent and trust Him. I would, I would bristle greatly against the way you worded it first. Well, Christ died for you, and if you respond to Him... I mean, that, that's kind of the substance of the debate that we're having here, right, the, right. the topic. But um, I, no, I, I can't say for sure to an unbeliever that Christ died for you. Maybe, maybe you're going to experience salvation. But no, it, if you die in your sins and go to hell, then it just rings really hollow for me to say, well, you're in hell, but at least Christ died for you. Right, and I don't know anyone who goes about um, the practice of sharing the gospel, uh, evangelism, getting diving into these what I would consider in-house debates. Mm. Um, if someone said, "Well, did Christ die for me?" I would say, well, he died for the world. I, I think you could say that because um, that's what the, the Bible says. Um, one one person said, <clears throat> well, would it, what would it mean if you offered someone a TV knowing that they weren't going to take it and the TV was actually for someone else? But you said, hey, would you like this TV? It's your, and I'll even try to reword it so it kind of fits more. You could say, you know, if you express a desire for this TV, it can be yours. But you know that they're not going to express a desire for it. And you didn't. You only had one TV. It was actually for someone else. Wouldn't you be being dishonest with them? Um, not if you would actually give it to them if they... I mean... Yeah. Uh, let's make up more stilted examples. Well, yeah, I just felt that... that we are limited in our knowledge. Yeah. We don't know what God has done from eternity. <clears throat> we are called to go preach the gospel, mm-hmm. to give the good news to everyone. Um, salvation. And, and that's why I'm saying we're not offering <clears throat> salvation. We don't have TVs. Right. right. We are announcing God's salvation. And if a salvific transaction occurs, we're not involved in it. Right. So it's not like we're, that, we're not a mediator metaf- in any way. Right. That's where yeah. the metaphor breaks down. We don't have salvation that we're parceling out. We don't have TVs that we're handing out. We, we're, we're pointing them to the guy that has the salvation right. and saying, go get it from him. Right. And if they go, they get it. Exactly. So it's not one TV and, well, you can have it, but please don't say you want it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's an unlimited store. And if you go ask God... You get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that God from eternity knows who's going to act means that God from eternity can limit who he pays for. Well, and that, that to me brings in another point that I don't know that we've discussed directly. Um, and I'm not sure if it's completely applicable to the limited atonement. And I didn't tell you about this, so here you go. I'm throwing it back at you. But if we say that God is omniscient and omnipotent, 
But we also would affirm that the gospel is the only method of salvation. Then God knows about all the people who will live and die and never hear the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament or the name of Christ since the cross. So if he has ordered the world so that the only medicine or salvation or however you want to kind of conceptualize it, they're not even ever aware of it. Then it seems like he's limited it so that they can't be part of the atonement anyway. Right? I mean, th this is one thing that I've never understood is even if the Arminians are right about the way God works, I mean, if they are, then it seems like God's done a rather poor job with getting his gospel out to the nations. It's 2,000 years later, and we still know of thousands of people groups that haven't ever heard the gospel. Which means if, if, if you have to make a choice for God, it's up to you. You have the free will, but you never even know about the offer. Isn't God in charge of that? Yeah. I, yeah. So you're saying, just to, to digest this, that there have been other means that through just the facts of history, the announcement of the gospel has been limited to certain people groups. So we could talk about why, but the fact is it was limited. Yeah. Um, and if God is sovereign and God um, is omniscient, he knew that that was going to happen. He could have actualized one of his people to go, but for some reason that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, what about, I don't know, Native American populations in 100 AD? In spite of the best human effort, getting the gospel to them, I would say, was just an impossibility. So maybe that's a podcast topic, like what, you know, those who never heard... Well, or you think it's very simple? <laughs> I mean, I think it's simple, but I know well, I, that it causes concern for some people. I think that the common ground we have with Arminians would be that if you don't ever hear the gospel, you can't be saved because the gospel is the only means for salvation. Peter's very clear: there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we may be saved. So, if you, which is, which is. Frequently, to, to their credit, but I don't think it's only them who cares about missions. That's the, I mean, we, we have a, a motivation for missions because we realize there's only one way of salvation. Only if we take the gospel to people, that's the only means by which they can be saved. Therefore, you back it up and you go, okay, in 50 AD, when only the Eastern Mediterranean was evangelized and India, China, America. I mean, you had people all over the globe. God knew they would exist, and God knew that they would never hear the gospel. Was that just because he knew they wouldn't? I mean, like, how do you handle that? I think our position handles that fairly well. I don't think the Armenian position has a very good answer for that. If you're an Armenian and you have one, please comment, because I would like to hear how you would handle or deal with that. Yeah, well, I know... Um how one person deals with it, but I don't know if we have time to go into it here. So okay. maybe that's a, a separate okay. discussion. Okay. Um, so Tim Barnett had this objection. If sins are paid for and payment is applied, how can a person be dead in their sins prior to repentance and faith per Ephesians 2, 1 through 5? So the, 
I've forgotten about it because we were kind of having a little bit of talk before this, and I was talking about the man's perspective of what happens versus God's perspective of what happens. Right. We're in time. We're born. We experience uh, this time without Christ, and we're dead in our sins. And then there's this turning point in our lives when we are regenerate, we believe, uh, we turn, which I don't think we address, but for both of us, we think that happened. We re- We are regenerate logically prior to repentance and faith because we can't do the one without the other but chronologically it's simultaneous that's what you believe i would say that's by far the usual case um we maybe a different discussion but uh, sure yes okay yeah so um Regeneration precedes faith. Faith is a logical statement more than a chronological statement. Right, yeah. right. Because there's other verses like having believed you received the Holy Spirit. Well, you don't receive the Holy Spirit until you're regenerate in that sense of how it's, how it's being used. Thanks for tuning in for our discussion on the doctrine of limited atonement. Check out our podcast next week for part five. You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. 